Hello, my name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast, a place for in-depth discussions about the rebirth of masculinity happening around the world today. To kick off the third year of this podcast, my guest this week is a husband, father, pastor, and the president of New St. Andrews College in Moscow, Idaho, Dr. Ben Merkel. This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. I've got good news and bad news. First, the bad news. In case you hadn't heard, the institutions that humanity built to serve us have all but failed. But what is an institution? I think of them like meta-technologies. Groups of people, processes, information, hard assets, and regulations that allow us as a civilization to accomplish more collectively than we could do alone. For example, the U.S. government is an institution. Though we're used to thinking of government a bit like gravity, an immutable aspect of reality, government is a created thing. It's taken shape slowly over thousands of years, progressing through different versions until arriving in its current form. All the institutions are like this. Medicine, law, finance, transportation, even sports. They're the product of millions of men together over millennia, building the gears that make our complex civilization run. Our institutions might be the most significant technologies ever created by man. They wield profound influence over our lives, and they're all the more powerful because most people never think about them. Most, but not all. Because in the 20th century, the Marxists were thinking pretty hard about them, and an Italian revolutionary by the name of Antonio Gramsci realized that if you wanted to subvert and control a civilization, you didn't need to do it by physical confrontation or force of arms. You could do it by seizing control of the institutions that direct civilization instead. Imagine society is like a man driving a car. If you wanted to take control of the car, you could carjack it, grab the man and throw him out and drive the car away. But that gets messy, and the man might fight back. What if instead you took control of the steering column, the brakes, and the engine? Then you can steer the car, control the speed, and take it anywhere you want, regardless of who's driving. That philosophy applied to society was called the long march through the institutions. It's a march because it's a disciplined act of solidarity conducted by a unified group, like a parade march. Long because while a carjacking is quick and messy, seizing the institutions like the steering column, brakes, etc., will take a bit longer, on the order of decades. And not just into, but through the institutions, because the institutions themselves are not the goal. They're just the means to the end of total social control and revolution. So, that brings us up to today. And like I said, I've got good news and bad news. The bad news is that the long march through the institutions has been successful. Every institution has been subverted. And if their actions aren't downright criminal, like those of the so-called healthcare system, not to mention journalism and many, many others, then at best the institutions are parasitic on the very people they're meant to serve, namely you and me. And all of this happened under our noses, or really our parents' noses, which is why so many Americans refuse to accept that anything is wrong. They grew up trusting institutions, as those very institutions were being subverted. In fact, older Americans were the last ones to get the maximum benefit of institutions functioning at their peak, before the institutions decisively swerved society off the main highway, driving Americans down a dark road sometime around March 2020. Now here we are, with the car careening through dusky shadows, well over the speed limit, into gathering storm clouds. Hubcaps are falling off, the check engine light is on, and the fan belt is squealing loud enough for the whole world to hear. Yet I'm sure you know many people who are still saying, this is fine, the driver must know where he's going unable to accept that the car is being driven by other means. Among the most important institutions that helped elevate America to its global leadership status is the institution of higher education, 
colleges, and universities. So it shouldn't be a surprise that in the long march through the institutions, universities were targeted first. This isn't just a question of proximity. Yes, most Marxists were intellectuals who hid within the comforts of tenure. But they also understood that if you could stamp your ideology on the minds of future generations as their worldviews are taking shape in a confined space, removed from their parents, you could exert a profound influence on every other institution those younger generations would later go on to work within and for. Which is why today, universities have become some of the most virulent hotbeds of leftist ideology. They got hit first and have had the most amount of time to develop the highest concentration of madness. There are three responses to this situation. First is retreat. Since the people who now populate institutions have no idea how to build or run them, some think we can simply walk away from them and let them collapse. This is a dangerous proposition, however, because a bear on ice skates is still a bear. It may look clumsy, but you don't want it to get a hold of you. Option two is a long march back through the institutions, which today is an uphill climb, unless you can put on your most convincing black transgender lesbian suit and come up with an original set of pronouns. And now for the good news, because there is an option three. And option three is to build competing institutions, media, publishing, medicine, finance, journalism, and more. Many of the guests I've had on this show are doing just that. It's why I pick the guests I do. Which brings me to my guest this week. His name is Dr. Ben Merkel, and he's the president of New St. Andrews College in Moscow, Idaho, a small town with a deservedly big reputation, which I'm sure many of you know. I had heard of Ben and New St. Andrews, but didn't have a good grasp of what the college was until a YouTube video called Meet Big Ed appeared on my feed a few weeks ago, attacking everything wrong with higher education and describing what New St. Andrews offers in response. I watched it, and right away, I got it. I reached out to Ben that night. New St. Andrews, or NSA, represents everything I hope to celebrate with the Renaissance of Men, a disciplined, principled, and culturally savvy response that values seeing clearly, speaking truth, and taking positive action over beating a negative retreat. Because the main banner of the NSA website reads, Graduating Leaders Who Shape Culture, Living Faithfully Under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And when was the last time you associated those words with a university? As you'll hear, everything New St. Andrews does is in service to this simple mission, which has taken shape under Ben's leadership during a troubled time, and not a moment too soon. Because as great as homeschooling is, higher education is called higher for a reason. It elevates the mind and spirit of the recipient, transmitting priceless cultural wisdom that, frankly, lies outside the grasp of most parents to teach. So if we're going to fight a cultural war at the highest level, we need higher education. And that Moscow and Dr. Merkel are building towards that end is, to me, one of the surest signs of hope on the horizon, despite the gathering clouds. In our conversation, Ben and I discussed the origins of New St. Andrews in the vision of Pastor Doug Wilson the COVID moment, and the new St. Andrew's response, Ben's own origin story, and the winding path that led him into the role he holds today, why women should go to college, the new St. Andrew's curriculum and mode of student life, NSA's response to the Biden administration's program for student loan forgiveness, post-millennialism and how eschatology influences our institution building, and finally, Ben's vision for the future of NSA. To me, this is what it means to fight a cultural war. Sort out your fitness and finances, yes. Produce content, yes. Repent, join a church, and submit to discipleship, yes. But when all that is done, do what men like Ben do, and build. There's no time to waste. If you enjoy the Renaissance of Men podcast, thank you. Please leave a five-star rating on Spotify and a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to share this episode so we can help the Renaissance reach more men and women. For those listening to the audio, this interview, along with clips, is also available on YouTube. Don't forget to smash that like button and subscribe. A bit of big news for the Renaissance, my Rewire the West series just released episode 4, with episode 5 coming this week, where I dip into theology and bring all the pieces together. I think you're going to like it. Also, this week I was a guest on the hit international podcast Cultish, part one of my three-part series about Burning Man, Eastern mysticism, and my personal testimony just came out and hit the top 50 for worldwide spirituality podcasts. And the next episodes will dive deep into the phenomenon of ayahuasca and more. Don't miss it. Finally, the Renaissance of Men will be hosting a podcast booth at ReformCon here in Phoenix, Arizona, 
on October 28th and 29th. You can meet me along with speakers like Pastor Jeff Durbin, Pastor Toby Sumter, Joe Boot, David Bonson, Dr. Ben Merkel, and others. Let's hang out. Get your tickets now. You can find links for Rewire the West, Cultish, and ReformCon in the show notes. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome this week's guest on the Renaissance of Men podcast, marking the beginning of my biggest and best year yet, the president of New St. Andrews College in Moscow, Idaho, Dr. Ben Merkel. Dr. Ben Merkel, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. So I've been, like many, uh, like many in my community, watching the Moscow Project with great interest. Uh, and of course, the, the recent NBC News um, piece has, yeah. was, also, was also fun to watch. But it's so fascinating and inspiring to me to watch what's happening up there as you begin to reimagine American Christian society. And higher education is such an important part of the American tradition. So I have great admiration for what you're doing at New St. Andrews. So I'm, I'm excited for the chance to talk to you about this today. Thanks very much. So maybe um, let's start with how New St. Andrews was founded and what some of its founding principles were. And then we'll see if we can go a bit up to today and, um, and some of the statements that it's making about higher education in general in like the 2020s. Sure. Yeah. So I mean, I think NSA is, is really, um, you know, there's there's kind of a long series of things that that are that precede the, the founding of NSA. I think um, obviously uh, Doug Wilson is kind of a, a pretty significant figure in uh, in what's been going on in Moscow. And Doug has had a very prominent um, uh, position both as a pastor, blogger, and you know speaker at conferences, and author and yeah. whatnot. So you have a lot of people following him. But I think there are a number of of prominent pastor authors that are out there. But one of the things that sets Doug aside really was, I think, the the foresight to um, invest a significant amount of his work in the founding of educational institutions. And that really started in 1980 with us with the founding of Logos School. So that became became essentially the flagship for the classical Christian school movement. So that was started in 1980 when uh, my wife uh, Rebecca was a kindergartner. You know, he started it for wow. her, and it was this kind of innovative um, uh, experiment of uh, applying this um, essay um, written by Dorothy Sayers, "The Lost Tools of Learning," as uh, this experimental school, which ended up doing extremely well. So, in 1990, he publishes "Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning," which was his book on that experiment. Mm -hmm. That gets picked up. A number of people start following it, and it starts uh, the annual ACCS conference, which begins here in Moscow, but then starts to move regionally. And it becomes this really a national movement of starting classical Christian schools. It then hump, um, jumps over into um, uh, the homeschooling world with things like classical conversations and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So you have this huge um, classical school movement. Um, but but locally, what it does is it it brings together a number of families, um, not just on Sunday morning, but around this idea of we're building a generational project here. And as the church sort of matures theologically, uh, becomes reformed, becomes uh, Calvinistic, and a number of things, that the, the church starts to have this expanded understanding of what um, what cultural uh, innovation and and rest, reformation really looks like. The school really becomes a really important piece in making that a generational deal, uh, yep. which I think is extremely yes. significant. Mm -hmm. um, 1994, that would be when my wife graduated from uh, Logos, the first class to have gone all the way through. That fall is when New St. Andrews is started. And it's really built on top of that the legacy of that K-12 school. So New St. Andrews is started. and um, and now you have people coming from all over the country and in some insta instances from all over the world in order to attend this school. And we yeah. see the community that builds around that is really, really significant. So now it's a handful of different churches all in the Moscow area. And this school uh, Logos has just exploded in size. But it's and then it's you're starting to see it replicated elsewhere across the U.S. And then how does your story intersect with New St. Andrews? Yeah, you know, I, I was uh, um, born and raised in Boise down in southern Idaho. 
I was a reservist in the Marine Corps um, and came up to the University of Idaho in 1991. Um, I heard about this weird church uh, that I, I, I actually, I actually met Doug. Um, I'd started the University of Idaho lacrosse club and we started this lacrosse team and Doug had started the Logos uh, lacrosse team. And so we, I met him through lacrosse and, oh, wow. uh, and then discovered, yeah, it was, and I discovered that I was teaching a Bible study through Campus Crusade using this book by a guy named Doug Wilson and suddenly yeah. realized it was the same guy. Um, I, wow. I, joined the NSA their very first year. I, I joined their Greek class because I really wanted to learn biblical Greek. And uh, that's where I met Becca uh, in that mm -hmm. in that first class um, and was just really intrigued by the whole thing. I was I was falling down the stairs of reformed theology during this time. And by the time <laughs> I graduated, yeah, <laughs> yeah, whacking my head all the way down. Yeah. And by the time I graduated, I, I was uh, reformed. Uh, so my first job I took was um, doing campus ministry uh, for Christ Church to the University of Idaho. Um, Becca and I got married that first year. And within another two years, um, I, was, I was doing Grayfires, the church's ministerial training program. And I began starting to help Doug as a TA for one of his classes which grew into a, uh, a teaching position, which grew into a career. Mm -hmm. And then when uh, you're currently the president of New City Andrews, when, yeah. when, did, uh, when did you take over that role? That was about seven and a half years ago. Okay. Um, I, had, I had become an instructor, um, but I really was kind of splitting my time between being a pastor and a, um, and a teacher at NSA going back and forth, mm -hmm. um, decided I really wanted to go all in on NSA. And so that's when I um, applied to Oxford for, because I'd done a master's, but I knew I wanted the doctorate. So applied mm -hmm. to Oxford. I did a second master's at Oxford on Jewish studies and then did my doctorate there, came back and um, was executive minister at Christ Church, but then became academic dean at NSA. And then when my predecessor, uh, Dr. Atwood, stepped down as president, then I stepped in, in his, as his replacement. So that was about yeah, seven and a half, eight years ago. That's really fortuitous timing because it, it gave you about a five-year runway before. I mean, American culture was already really shifting prior to 2020, but you were already really you know, rooted in the role so that when everything kind of went nuts, the COVID faux apocalypse, like so that, <laughs> I saw that YouTube video, so good. Yeah. So you're kind of there on the ground, you know, really rooted to be able to be like, okay, we need to be able to respond to that, to, to this kind of crisis, quote, unquote. I, I, you know, I, I joke about how it, it, up until just a few years ago, it had felt like God was drunk driving with my life. Um, just, <laughs> I know that well, feeling. Just, just because, you know, it would be like, am I a teacher? Am I a pastor? I moved to, you know, like yeah. I didn't really know what I was doing until I landed in this job. And then things started coming together and you started seeing God's perfect timing and everything that he had put into place. And definitely those first few years, I had no idea what a college president was. And it was a few years of me starting to understand what was unique about NSA, why, why we do what we do. And, and what was really interesting is um, one of the things that the NSA board does is every quarter they read a book together. And one of the books that we read probably in 2019 was uh, Nassim Tlaib's Anti-Fragile. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading this and saying, I think he's describing NSA. And it, and it really helped us to articulate the things about NSA that we thought were unique, important, and anti-fragile. And so we'd gotten to this point where it's like, okay, we understand what we're doing, why we're doing. And then COVID hit and man, mm -hmm. the anti-fragility of NSA and what we're doing here just became so clear. And so... Um, yeah, God's timing was perfect in putting all of that together, and it's really been a huge blessing. How many students are at NSA? It's not, it's not a large university. No, we're a teeny little school. So we're at uh, 227 in the undergrad, another 50 to 60 in the grad school. When I started, we were probably around 125 to 130 in the undergrad. So we've just about doubled over the last few years, and it really is this, the, the, the COVID moment helped us to understand what we're doing and just, just launched things. Let's talk about that. Like what, what were the principles and how, and how did the COVID moment really solidify some things and shift some other things? Yeah. So, so, you know, there was just a whole number of things, some of them seemingly small and trivial, but, but became really important things like, mm -hmm. you know, we don't have dorms, we don't have mm -hmm. a cafeteria or a meal plan. 
And, and that's by design. We want our students actually involved in the real community and the life of the local churches, not in a little fake world on campus. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the places where schools got hit the hardest is they had to, they, they didn't refund tuition, but they had to refund all their dorm uh, residence plans, meal plans, things like that. So we got spared all of that, which was extremely helpful. Was able, we were just in a nimble position to navigate the whole COVID moment, which was really great. Um, but more, that's more trivial. The bigger things had to do with things like um, in, you know, at, at the very center, a um, a very robust and and powerful Christian witness. Um, the last 20 years or the last well, yeah, I've lost 20, 30 years. Yeah. Christian colleges have been um, uh, doling their Christian witness and making deep um, compromises with secularism, but they've done it very quietly on campus. <laughs> yeah. So, so the students and faculty know what's going on, but donors and board members and constituents don't. And so oh. they believe that, that this is still that, that classic, you know, evangelical college that Billy Graham would have wanted it to be, you know, they think that it's that, but then you show up and it's a different world entirely. I remember going to a meeting with a um, bunch of college presidents and a very prominent Christian college president describing to us the spectrum that all the college presidents face, which is um, on the one hand, you have your sort of Republican capitalist, um, conservative, evangelical. And on this end, you have very uh, Democrat, uh, liberal, progressive ideology, leans towards socialism and whatnot. And he was like, and we all know this is where our donors and our board members are here and our faculty and students are over here. And it's just this kind of progression. And it was like the president's job to stand in the middle and make sure that the two never encountered the other, you know, the other end of the spectrum. Wow. And it was like, you know, that was really, it's really sad. But then yeah. basically over the last couple of years, that the the blanket that was covering that is just getting pulled back and people yeah. are suddenly realizing what's going on on college campuses and how far gone they are. And so um, that moment is a moment that when we've been able to really lean into, and you mentioned some of the marketing and whatnot, we've been able to be really vocal about, no, this is what we believe. And if you have a problem with saying that, you know, guys and girls should use different bathrooms, um, then, then this isn't the school for you because the, the, we're, we're pretty robust ab about this. And, um, and that, I think a lot of people just step back. We're like, finally a school that will say that somebody where PhD doesn't um, mean that you've been, had all of your evangelical convictions removed, you know, surgically removed. Um, so, so that's been a big one. Um, the, the financial model of the school has also been really big. The fact that we say no federal money, no, um, no Pell Grants, no federal, uh, federally subsidized student loans. Throughout the whole COVID thing, we took no PPP money. I had a phone call from, um, you know, the state offering us was like 250 grand for the CARES Act, I think it was. And it was just, here's the check, where do we send it? And to be able to say, we don't want it, keep mm -hmm. it, don't send it. Um, so we stayed out of the money completely. And um, and that meant no strings on us, which has been really important for us to hold our principles. And now seeing, um, you know, student loan forgiveness, um, this is a total theft uh, being perpetrated on America. And most, I think, you know, at least half of America believes this is a, a real wrong being done and pretty obvious blatant, just grab for votes. You know, you're just yeah. manipulating policy to grab some votes really quick. Um, and how many colleges can stand up and oppose it? We did a press release saying we condemn this as theft. It's wrong. And I don't think there are any other colleges that are really ready to step up and say that right now. And so that's why I say there's a number of these principles that have always been there for us. And then this moment just seems orchestrated for us to lean in, speak into the microphone and, and say something about this. Yeah, that's that's um, how I discovered what you guys were doing. Of course, I had, you know, I've talked to Doug and, and Pastor Toby and, and I, you know, I, I watched the, I watched what's going on up there with great interest. So I knew about New St. Andrews, but I didn't really have a good sense of context what it was until I saw your Meet Big Ed ad that, oh, popped, yeah, up, yeah. that popped up popped up in my YouTube feed. And I was like, okay, we got to talk about this <laughs> because it, you, you do yeah. seem and you are very well positioned to make so such 
very strong cultural commentary and, and that yeah. you apply it to the higher education model, which is like a, a sacred cow almost in a way. Oh, yeah. And so that, and so that you guys are rooted enough and, and uh, say free enough to be able to do that. It's incredibly powerful because that institution needs to be spoken against. Yeah, it really is. Um, it's extremely powerful. I mean, the education machine is what has enculturated the entire generation yeah. into the madness that we're inside of right now. Yeah. And the difficulty is, is that even our most conservative institutions of higher ed are com- complicit to some degree and to such a point that they can't really speak against it. And so mm-hmm. they can't offer a really robust alternative. And so we are, like I said, we're definitely blessed to be in, in this spot. I, um, I, I do try to make sure to, um, note this again and again, when, when I'm in this kind of conversation, how m- there were a number of principles that when I kind of walked into this office and inherited this role, these were the DNA of NSA that I inherited. And it was the real, I think, extreme foresight of the founders of the school. Doug Wilson was a big piece of that. Roy Atwood, my, my predecessor, early other members of the board, that, that really established this is the DNA of NSA, they were seeing something coming that was extremely profound and built it into the school. I, I inherited it, so I get to pretend like this is my idea, but it was given to me. We get to cultivate it, right? Like it's, it's one oh, thing yeah. to, you know, you build, the, you build the ship for the storm and you're, you're still steering the boat. Like you didn't necessarily yeah. build it, but you're still, still steering the boat, which yeah. is a thing. Yeah, that's true. Really true. And, and I think this is the power, this is the power, I think, of the post-millennial philosophy, maybe just to speculate, is to say, you can see something coming and you can say that the response is to go into the basement and hide, or you can see something coming and say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to build institutions of our own to push back on this thing that's coming. It seems yeah. to be a very fundamentally, fundamentally different approach. I think that that's a really um, important and profound point is the application of your eschatology to how we think about education. Because yeah. one of the things I notice is when I look at um, evangelical conservatives and they're thinking about higher ed, um, almost universally, all of their strategies are defensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's about um, how do I get where I want to go with as little of that college education impacting me as possible. Right. Um, you, you know, so, so you get, yeah. you get like the Dave Ramsey um, debt plan. How can I get through without, you know, carrying a whole lot of student loan debt, which is a great thing to do. I'm yeah, not for sure. knocking that, but you get that kind of Dave Ramsey applied to almost everything. Like how can I get through this education with as little of it impacting me as possible? Um, and I get out the other side with a piece of paper that I need, which is a really, it's, it's a, it's a, defensive strategy rather than an offensive one. And I want to say, listen, what if we were to build the institutions where you're thinking, I want as much of that college impacting me as possible because it's actually doing something good. Um, We don't think in terms of building the institutions that will actually be a blessing. We think of navigating the world's institutions with as little of it impacting me as possible, but Mm -hmm. I want to go on the offense. I think that's great because I think college used to be that way, and and my friends and I were talking about this. I think things really started to shift. It was it was before my time. Obviously, I wasn't in college at the time, but the movie Animal House that I think really <laughs> yeah. shifted the expectations of what college was. But yeah. I don't think it used to be that college was a blessing, and now it's it's an indoctrination yeah. factory. Yeah, right? it, it is, and I think the Animal House is a really good picture of that because I think a lot of times people think that like what's going on in secular college campus is the you know the 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 atheist worldview coming from the philosophy professor that slowly infests and turns our kids. And that, that happens to some degree, but I think far more common what it is, is the freshman who goes off to college, starts getting drunk, starts fornicating, his conscience bothers him. And that's when the philosophy prof comes in and offers him a worldview that takes away that guilt and explains it all and justifies it. And then they realize I could live this different kind of life, this hedonistic life that I have a philosophy to go with it. And that's, where they end up losing the faith, but it really starts, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why we said no dorms, because it starts with that dorm fraternity, um, kind of setting you up for all kinds of, uh, sexual vices, uh, drunkenness. Um, although now I think you're more likely to smoke pot than smoke cigarettes on a college campus. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so you've got all kinds of new things coming on as well. Yeah, I mean, I went to I went to Stanford in the mid '90s. My freshman year was 1996, so okay. we're about 30, you know, what 20 years or so 
removed from from our 25 years. Wow. Removed yeah. from our current era. And back then, you're making me remember all these things I had forgotten. Like I've, yeah. I've talked about the ethnic theme dorms, that there was a black student, black dorm and an yeah. African-American dorm and Latin American dorm and Asian American dorm. And my freshman dorm had co-ed bathrooms on my floor. Like the toilet, okay. the men and women toilets were separate on opposite sides, but they shared like starting to remember. And then it it baffled me that this elite university social life still centers around fraternities. Like there isn't in yeah. football. It doesn't make any sense to me. That's yep. not what yeah, I'm here yeah. for. Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely. It's this, it's a particular world in life that you're being brought into to live yeah. there for four years that really pulls you away from everything that your parents were raising you to be. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't raised with any particularly strong religious education. I wasn't, I wasn't raised Christian. Um, mm. I came to that later in life, but, but still that the values, and it was like, it wasn't that the values were being actively promoted. It was just taken for granted. Like, this is what college is. It's like, mm-hmm. wait a minute. Like I've worked 18 years of my life to get into this institution. And now I get here. It's like the cultivation of the life of the mind is almost become secondary to these social practices, which totally take you away from why you went there in the first place. Oh yeah. So, so this is another interesting um, piece of trivia that, that I've been trying to get people aware of. In, in 1960, typical um, typical academic work week, a, a college student on average spent 40 hours a week on school. Uh, that's going to class and doing uh, homework and whatnot, which makes sense. It's 40 hours a week, full-time job. Um, and they've been doing this study since 1960. The last one I saw was, I think, from 2018. In 2018, a typical student was working 17 and a half hours a week on school. And if you imagine, okay, 12 hours are, let's say 12 minimum credit loads. So that's supposed to be 12 hours in class. Then that meant in 1960, you had to study 28 hours to be ready for school. 2018, you had to study five and a half hours. We, it, that is um, less than one fifth as much work as it take, as it used to take. So when you talk about like it used to be about this cultivation of life of the mind, there used to be this intellectual rigor mm-hmm. that 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 college was expecting of you. Now it's 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 pathetic. And what's interesting, same over that same time, the awarding of the A as a degree became mm-hmm. three times more likely. Yeah. So, so you're three times more likely to get an A, and you have to work less than one fifth as hard. College has has become something totally different than what we once imagined it to, to be. And I think that's also why, for instance, um, employers are increasingly frustrated with these graduates who they, they, they don't feel like they, they don't seem trained to actually hold down a job. And I think that they tend to think, well, it's like you studied the wrong subject, so they didn't give you the right. But I think what they're not realizing is it used to be when somebody graduated from college, it meant that they knew how to spend 40 hours a week working hard with their mind. Now, those students have never, they still have not yet been exposed to a week of work. Yeah. And, and the idea of sitting down at a job and working hard is terrifying and new to them. And it's something that they're not ready for because they haven't experienced it yet. I'm glad you mentioned the grade inflation because that was a big scandal at like Harvard, right? Yeah. You know, they discovered that. And when you throw in the wokeness, you know, the, the indoctrination in the classes and when you throw in um, uh, affirmative action and, and taking in, you know, lower quality students. Cause the reason why, one of the reasons I always heard you go to a great university is for the competition with your fellow students, like you're yeah. in algebra, trigonometry, whatever, it's all going to be the same, no matter where you go, but to fight for a higher grade versus some of the best students in the, in, in the country, in the world, that's where a lot of the learning happens. But when you start doing the affirmative action and doing grade inflation, you take away that benefit. Kids don't have to work yep. as hard. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And I, and I think that, college isn't what it once was. And I think that's why now colleges are in this real, I I was in a, um, um, being interviewed just before coming Mm -hmm. onto this. And it was a guy who was doing an interview of college presidents and their, um, and all of his questions around this like emergency that college presidents are feeling where their degrees don't seem to be worth um, what it used to be. And they're scratching their heads, trying to figure out what could possibly be the cause uh, of this. And it's like, you are not delivering the product that was once being delivered. You, you've right. completely changed it and, and people don't want anymore. Yeah. And what I like about what I've been seeing from, uh, from your marketing campaigns on YouTube is that the promise of, of 
as good an education as what I was hoping to get back then is evident from what you're putting out. Like, cause I remember okay. I can still go back in my, my, when I was, when I was applying for college and looking at all the brochures, like there was no YouTube, YouTube back then, but I could look at all the brochures and stuff like that. And I look at what you guys are doing, like that would have been just as appealing to me as what I looked at all along. And, and you're doing a good job of surfacing what you have. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we, we've definitely um, rearranged our budget to push a lot into marketing. We're trying to speak into the microphone a little bit more about what it mm -hmm. is we're doing. We think this is the moment to do that. So let's talk a little bit about the student experience at NSA educationally, extracurricularly. You've talked a little bit, mm -hmm. a bit about dorms and lack thereof and food plans and stuff. So let's talk about from, a, from an academic perspective and from a social perspective and from an extracurricular perspective, what would a student experience coming to NSA? Yeah, so um, one of the other things that's really unique about NSA that um, would, would go into the, the heading of the earlier conversation is the fact that we only give one undergraduate degree in liberal arts. So it's just one, one degree that all the undergraduates go through. We have a, a assortment at the grad level, but the undergrads all are doing one generalist degree in liberal arts. So it is your classic blend of literature, philosophy, history. We do music. Um, uh, two years of theology, a strong emphasis on classical languages. And then there's a, a math science component that goes through it as well. Math, biology, we're looking to add physics this next year. Um, so so it's, it's just kind of your classic um, liberal arts degree. It's, um, we're a very small school, so you're in a small little cohort of classmates working through that program together. Uh, it actually, I think... Um, Keeping them together like that has allowed us to have a much higher degree completion rate than mm -hmm. uh, most other colleges because there's this kind of camaraderie that builds around the students as they're working through these classes together. They have a, a classical rhetoric uh, class that they take their their first year and you're getting up in front and speaking to your classmates, arguing, debating them uh, every, every single week. Um, so it, it's, uh, it is um, quirky and then I don't think it's going on very many other places in the U.S. and yet it is quite very standard, what, what a standard liberal arts curriculum ought to, ought to yeah, look like. Used to be. Um, as I said, a strong uh, lang classical language component. So everybody starts in their first year Latin class and the Latin is taught as an actual spoken language. So um, I've, I've noticed in the classical world, a lot of people do, they study Latin, but what that means is they've learned how to do Latin exercises. Uh, they've not actually learned how to read Latin. And our students are truly understanding the language they can converse in it and they can pick up a text and actually read in the language so upper classes you can you'll have a class on virgil but you're just reading virgil in latin etc but you can add uh classical greek you can add uh, biblical hebrew uh onto that as well so a strong language component and and two years of theology it's um we're a teeny little school we're we're right in downtown moscow my office is on Main Street, we're um, kind of at the very center of downtown Moscow. Moscow is a university town. The University of Idaho is here. Mm -hmm. And so it's really built as a town to serve college students. So when I say the students need to grab an apartment, or whatever, that's really not a big deal because that's what this town does. Um, it's really easy to get an apartment anywhere um, around here and all within walking distance of NSA. So you can walk to class. We we are spread out over two buildings, this building, and then we have another North Campus a couple blocks up the street. Um, and uh, and really, life is lived kind of on Main Street. We tend to say downtown is our campus, you know, study at a mm -hmm. coffee shop or whatever. Uh, but it's kind of overflowing with NSA students. Um, we we um, one of the things that's interesting about NSA, we don't. Um, we don't have like a weekly chapel or something like that. We don't have mm -hmm. a spiritual plan for the students as far as that goes, because we really want the students to be involved in one of the local churches. And so the students attend one of the local churches and tend to be really involved in the local church life. And Moscow is really unique in having a number of extremely vibrant um, uh, evangelical reform congregations around here. I preach at one across the street here on Sunday mornings, but there's, you know, Toby, Pastor Toby Sumter is about two blocks that way. Actually, they meet in our North Campus building. Mm -hmm. um, or you can go to Christ Church with Doug uh, Wilson, and they're all just kind of right around here. So students get sucked into the local churches and and become a part of, of that life, which is really important to us that they be a part of, of real, true church life. Um, 
trying to think of other uh, other areas you'd like me to go with that, but that, hopefully that kind of gives you a little bit of a sense of what NSA is like. Oh, I would add one other no. thing. We 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 recently um, divided the church into three um, halls, which will increasingly become um, academic programs, and so we're we're we've just kind of begun that work. The three halls then um, also have a whole extracurricular side to them and compete in. Uh, so this Saturday will be the uh, rugby tournament of the three halls. Uh, we'll all be, uh, my, my son is uh, in one of the rugby teams. So they'll be have their, their Jerusalem sevens uh, rugby tournament uh, this Saturday. They'll be volleyball, ladies volleyball in the next term, men's basketball and on and on. So they have an assortment of different competitions. They compete in um, uh, rhetoric uh, declamations and debate and whatnot and things like that. And that goes on throughout the year. We do have one right now. We have a rowing team that can, mm-hmm. that actually competes nationally, which is really I saw your ad. Yeah. It's really funny. I mean, it's great um, because it's such a, um, I, I rode when I was in Oxford and rowing was like a brutal, it's like if, if you ever done, um, cleans and weightlifting mm-hmm. if you can imagine doing cleans for cardio that's that's what rowing is like yeah. um and it's a brutal sport um in this last at the national competition one of our girls took second in the nation and one of their guys took fifth um so it's really fun to see them starting to compete at, at, at that level um well, i'm sure they'll they'll continue to grow mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking at all this from the perspective of, I myself, I'm obviously not an aspirational college student, but looking at New St. Andrews, what would you say to like a 17, 18 year old? Maybe they don't necessarily come because the pitch is very different to someone raised Christian, but what would you mm-hmm. say to, um, to perhaps a 17 or 18 year old who comes from a, a family with good values, not necessarily Christian, but a family with good values like they're considering some sort of uh, maybe a state school or a private school or a new St. Andrews. What would you say to that student who's like looking at options and discovers NSA? Yeah. I mean, so I, I always try to make clear that like, first of all, I think um, college is oversold in one to one degree. So I want to make clear, I don't think everybody has to go to college. I don't think college is the gatekeeper of, of yeah. gainful employment. So I want to make all those, those qualifiers that if you don't end up at college, that's not a failure. And maybe NSA is not right for everybody. But that said, I do think that there's a sweet spot that we are just truly the best at. Uh, and that is um, a young person who, um, who, and, and I, I would make the qualification that um, I do think it would be important that somebody who was coming to NSA had a really devout desire to follow Christ, like a real true evangelical commitment to follow Christ. Maybe they're not from, maybe they weren't raised that way and they don't have the foundations out there. But I think that if they did not have that kind of commitment, they would find themselves out of place at Mm -hmm. at NSA. So, so assuming you have somebody who says, look, I have a, I want to follow Christ. I don't know what I want to do. I'm generally interested in the world. I want to be pushed. I want to be challenged. I want to experience, you know, a, a boot camp for my brain, for my soul, and be made into a, a man that serves God and that that is ready to um, attack and transform culture for him. And I don't know what that would be, but I'm ready to get challenged. Somebody like that, I would say, come, we want, we want you. We want to, we want to, we want to scare you and then we want to comfort you and we want to build you up and equip you and then and send you out. That sounds amazing. Sold. Okay, great. <laughs> um, I also liked. I also liked uh, in one of your ads, um, you talked about preparing women for the most important job of all, which was to be mothers and to raise the next generation. Because that is a question that's out there: like, should should women girls go to college? And obviously, I think there's. I don't think there's any detriment to going to a school like NSA. But obviously, you know, as you discussed so uh, so well in the meat bag ed ad, that like there's things that'll cost you if you go to public school. So. Um, maybe yeah. talk a little bit about that dimension as well. So, yeah. So I think there's um, there's kind of a ditch on either side of the road when you're speaking about like how a woman ought to be preparing herself, particularly as she she steps out of high school graduation and how she should be, um, what she should be pursuing. On the one hand, I think you have a real problem with um, um, basically treating women as if they're indistinguishable from men and that they should be held up to the exact same um, standards as men. 
Um, because what tends to happen is, and, and th- this is the this is at the root of abortion, is we have we have um, uh, we have pathologized the female body and said that if you can't perform everything exactly like a man does, then you're somehow deficient and wrong, you know, and falling short. And so, if a pregnancy gets in the way of you pursuing a career the way a man does, then we need to be able, you have like a constitutional right to have that thing removed mm. so that you can be um, performed the way a man does. I think that's really a problem. Yeah. And professionalizing um, a woman's aspirations where um, if you are not holding a career like a man, you're somehow less of a person, I think fails to understand that a woman is different than a man. Mm. And so I, so I want to be really we want to be careful about that. On the flip side, um, I think that um, the the downs where where we've gone wrong is a lot of people have said, okay, so if a woman shouldn't be pursuing a professional career, then she shouldn't be pursuing an education. Mm-hmm. And and by doing that, we make education and career synonymous. And I don't think that that's the way they're supposed mm-hmm. to be. I think an education is the formation of the person. And I think to be a woman, to be a woman of great excellence can require a great and profound education. Um, and I would say I've, I've learned so much of this actually out of just being married to my own wife, mm-hmm. who was that guinea pig for the whole class led movement. I found a great, um, a great uh, bit of gratitude and thanksgiving for the fact that I'm married to a woman of great intelligence and who has an ability to think clearly and who has been educated to a very high level. Um, it's for her, it is not a, a a career focus. It's a person focus. It's to be who she is and particularly uh, to be a wife to me and to be a mother to my children. Um, this is, she wrote a book uh, a couple of years ago called um, Even Exile, which mm-hmm. is now a the documentary. documentary. Yeah. And, and, and those, those works really articulate, I think her reflections on this subject. So um, I, we believe strongly that the women in our college should get the same education as the men should be pushed as hard, should be um, as intellectually challenged and should be as educated. But we don't see that as needing um, the validation of, of a, a vocational track or a career in order to make it worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the two things that we're trying to kind of hold, hold together. And it makes for a really interesting town, I think. I think that's I think that's beautiful. I, th- I think so many of these discussions um, tend to one version or another of really low resolution. But when you frame it as you know, you know, higher education is for educating the person, not necessarily pre-professional or career. It, it removes yeah. all of that and says no. Like a woman can and should experience the the richness of becoming a full person and not be denied that, or not necessarily be you know go through a cookie cutter factor education preparing for dehumanizing career. Like that yeah. kind of way of framing it is like everyone should experience that. And you can see it as a universal good, not necessarily related to either sex, but that we is our almost birthright as human beings, maybe. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that that's exactly right. So I guess you mentioned the Eve in Exile documentary. And, um, and I remember a scene from that documentary where she's talking about making the kitchen, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, my, my question related to that is, you, everyone up there, you've kind of become public people in a, in a, in a way, and it must be a bit of a, a, it must be a bit of an, I don't know if it's an unexpected shift, totally unexpected shift, but what is, what has that been like to kind of go from being a small, you know, town trying to do this thing to suddenly having this national spotlight to whatever degree you feel yeah. comfortable talking about that? It, it is, it's true that that has happened. Um, it doesn't, um, most of the time I don't notice it because it's such a small <laughs> town it's such a small town. It's not weird to walk down the street and say hi to everybody because that's just what you would do in a small town anyways. What's weird is then when you leave town, uh, you know, to travel Uh, and people then start to know you like that's where that's kind of unsettling. And I don't, I don't notice it until most of the time when I'm, when I'm traveling on the road, but most of the time we're just doing what we would normally do. It's just that uh, more often than not now there's a camera that's somewhere in the room filming something, Mm. but I tend to not think about it. We're just, we're just trying to be faithful with what's in front of us. And then it is kind of funny how, when I travel, how frequently now, just like in airports, people will 
recognize me from doing Ask Doug segments or something like something like that, you know. Um, but that's still um, it's not going to my head because it's still pretty small, small fries, you know. Mm-hmm. Do you get? A, um, I'd imagine you probably get more support than than the media would make it seem. Maybe. Oh yeah, I mean, um, uh, one thing this this is a uh, a charming quirk of Doug's is his complete unflappability about um, firestorms and yeah. and um, becoming more and more um, a part of that family and and you know raising my family in the midst of it has meant that we've gotten pretty um, immune to people freaking out. Um, you know, uh, it, the, the people spitting on the window, that's just mm-hmm. what happens. Or mm-hmm. like, uh, yesterday, somebody filed a complaint with the city about, um, um, my home, whether I was, uh, violating zoning, uh, by having too many people live in my house, which was, it, and that, those sorts of things just happen all the mm-hmm. time. Um, they, they'll file charges or break your windows or whatever. Yeah. And it's just, well, it's Sorry. gotten into something that's just kind of quirk lovable about the town i'm honestly it doesn't really hurt we more just kind of snicker about it because it's just the what it's like and when you're around doug you kind of start to get uh, accustomed to like oh nbc's here today okay bbc next week no no big deal um Mm -hmm. we tend to blow it off and then we mostly live in just a small pleasant little town and Mm -hmm. this stuff kind of circles around but you don't notice it that much Mm -hmm. And of course, the recent NBC News segment highlighted some of the conflict in the town, specifically related to the university, that you have University of Idaho students and mm-hmm. NSA students in close proximity. Like, yeah. what that, what's that friction point like, I guess, from an administrative perspective and maybe from a student perspective as well? And how do the students handle it? Um, you know, it's funny because um, the University of Idaho students are not very interested in debate or being having their worldview expanded or anything like that. I, I would say there's hardly any. No way. Um, yeah, I know it's strange. I mean, it used to, <laughs> it used to be like, if you would do a debate, like we did um, earlier this uh, earlier this week, we did a big event and we did it on the university of Idaho campus um, called life after row. We brought in a bunch of speakers and whatnot to, um, to and um, two pro-life and two pro-choice to um, walk through the implications of the Dobbs ruling mm-hmm. and brought in some national scholars. It was really an interesting event. Show up on the U of I campus. It is a 99% church audience. Almost no, um, they, they're just not interested in conversation anymore. Mm-hmm. They don't do that. If they show up, they show up to scream and protest but but you don't get dialogue anymore the way you used to 20 years ago. It just doesn't really happen. And so as a town, um, you know, and particularly I think the COVID moment, and it's just a great, um, it's, it's extremely unfortunate. The COVID moment really created segregation in our town, unlike anything before. Um mm-hmm. Because of how um, over the top they were on mask things and whatnot, the town kind of sorted itself. And um, I don't think it's really resorted since then, which is, I think, a really un- unfortunate kind of thing. And it's just very diff- difficult to get conversation now. Mm-hmm. There's some advantage there, in that. It's like, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, there, there, there was a move. Um, I don't think it's going to pass the city council, but but um, our local human rights commission is proposing this sticker that um, if you make a certain pledge to um, diversity, which would have to include a statement about GLBT, whatever stuff, then there'll they'll be like this city sponsored sticker that can go on your business. And mm-hmm. that way people will know, you know, what kind of business <laughs> you are and whether you can go in there or not. Um, and, and there already is a list that's always sent around pretty regularly on social media about which businesses are owned or affiliated with somebody from Christchurch. And they and they they just they segregate like that, and so it's it's really unfortunate. But I just don't think that there's there's the integration that they they used to have. Are they going to pass something that like you have to have sew a patch onto your coat or something like that? Is that next? I know, I know. We wanted to like just volunteer a, a, a star or something like that that you could put on. What could it's, possibly go is, wrong? Yeah, it's kind of creepy sometimes, but at the same time, yeah. 
funny. <laughs> yeah. So I, I wanted to also ask about the faculty uh, because I, I have seen there's some really great lectures that you have available on the NSA YouTube channel. Really fascinating things. I think I watched something quickly today about uh, August, the Augustinian uh, moment in terms of education. And then I can't remember the name, something with a C. Uh, that just talk a little bit about the, the nature of the education and what some of the faculty gets into. Yeah, it is a really interesting faculty. I mean, I think that w what's really interesting is getting a, a faculty member who's both a specialist in his career and yet appreciative of the contribution of the other disciplines, mm -hmm. which is something like a lot of schools, you can have somebody who's really particularly good in their discipline, but they have zero conception of what's going on outside of their department mm -hmm. or outside of their one little spot. Whereas here, by by definition, you have to have a really intense integration of all the, the subjects. And so cultivating a faculty that's specialist and yet prioritizes integration, I think, creates a whole new set of conversation that I think is a, is a lot of fun. Um, it's a, I think, a really interesting and ro robust faculty. I think definitely because of all the growth we're going through, we're actually going through quite a lot of hiring right now. And um we're we're doing a lot of of collecting new guys and bringing in some new faces, which is making it a pretty pretty interesting kind of moment. Hmm. Can we, I'm I'm curious about the growth. More students, more faculty. I mean, I imagine that the vision is only to get to a certain size size, or maybe maybe not. But um, to yeah, preserve the yeah. values, you have to keep it almost a certain size. Yeah. So so what what we're hoping to do, or we're, we're in the middle of doing, is. Um, we, we'd like to grow. Um, I don't think we would go over a thousand. We would keep it under that. But what we'd like to do is take, uh, I mentioned these three halls that we're divided into. Those three halls will eventually become three distinct colleges. And so I'd like to have three colleges, each one less than 200 students. So I want to preserve that small, quirky little college of under 200 students, but have another um college exactly like you across the street that's kind of like your arch rival um and, Gryffindor and Slytherin. from the oxford model and then yeah. you have an administration that's floated on top so you get the economy of scale by having the administration that all three share mm -hmm. so that that's that's where we're headed and then i did watch one of your talks um maybe it was your annual address where you shared a bunch of things that universe that, that major american universities do that you don't do I wonder if you could share what some of those are, because I thought that was really important. Okay, I'm I'm trying to remember what that what that one was. Um, well, you mentioned uh, you know you don't take uh, government money was one of them, and um, and some and some what the insight looks like from inside the high level yeah. university picture. So yeah, so no federal money, um, no student loans, no Pell grants. Uh, like I said, we don't do any of the PPP money. So staying out of that whole thing. Um, it, it keeps us free of the, the, the strings that attach, but it also keeps us more responsive, I think, to the free market of where our tuition setting needs to be. Um, so staying out of that, not doing majors, I think has been a really important thing to us. We don't do a bunch of vocationally specific majors. That tends to throw people because they want to think that their degree will promise them a certain job. But I don't think that that's what college degrees do anyways. And I think we're much better at focusing on these core skills of, of the person. So not doing majors. We don't do dorms or meal plans. And again, I think that that's really important because we keep the students in real life. Um, you know, the, the idea of graduating from college and needing to find a job, needing to find a, a house, needing to find a church. Um, those are not weird for our students because they've been doing it the whole four years that they were here. Um, one of the, um, one of the pieces of data that I think is most striking about NSA is we, um, survey our alums at 15 years after graduation and 15 years after graduation, um, we have a less than 3%, 3% divorce rate. Um, so, and I think wow. that that has to do with the kind of life that they have while they're, while they're here as students, there's a certain foundation, uh, that we're building. Um, so not having dorms, not having, um, not having chapel. We expect them to be involved in a local church. I think all of those things really play into the kind of product that we're trying to produce. I think that's, that's one of the favorite, you've said a lot of really wonderful things, but the favorite thing I've heard you say is that 3% statistic, because, you know, who would have thought that higher education can be, can be tied to happy families and happy marriage? Like we're taught yeah. that those two things are, go ahead. 
Yeah. Well, the thing that I, I hear a lot when I talk to Christian families is they'll say, listen, I, I gave my kid, I sacrificed to pay for tuition through K to 12 or to my wife stayed home and we homeschooled and we were faithful K to 12. So they have a Christian education. They have a Christian worldview. The foundation is established. Now they can go off to college and get their degree in engineering, whatever, because college will be about vocational certification. They need to get a job. So they need to get that piece of paper to do it. And I've done the the worldview foundation here. And the thing that I always want to ask is, okay, just take me back to your own life and take me to the years 18 through 22. Were those the inconsequential years? Were those the years where it's like, oh, all the character formation had been established. 18 to 22 was was just very boring. No, no, no ideological change, no whatever. I mean, it's laughable because we all know 18 to 22 was many people became a Christian during those years. Many more, maybe they were a Christian, but they came to a much more profound personal ownership of their faith, maybe went through a theological transformation. I mean, for me, that's when my theological transformation happened. Um, your understanding of vocationally, what you wanted to throw yourself after, and in particular, um, your family, like who you married and, and the foundation that that marriage was built on, 18 to 22 was when all of that work was laid. And so when you take that 18 to 22 and you put it inside a faithful community of mature um, disciples and mentors challenging you, pushing you, modeling for you what marriage and parenting looks like, but encouraging you and giving you input. And that utterly transforms the what is accomplished during that 18 to 22. It makes you into a different kind of person. And it's and I'm not minimizing what happened in K to 12. I'm not minimizing that at sure. all. That was really important to lay. That was an important foundation to lay, but there's something still that needs to be done. And, and to do that in the context of a faithful covenant community is profound, and it's profound for the rest of your life. I think that those are the most strategic years, really, in the formation of that person. Was this something that you discovered after the fact, or was this kind of built in from the beginning? Because that is incredibly profound. Yeah, I... I um, it was definitely discovered after the fact. It wasn't until I became president we started doing this survey and figuring out because we had this we had this um, desire to say we want to graduate students who go out and shape culture and transform it in faithful ways. So we build this education, we do all this stuff, and then we send them out. And then I, when I stepped into this position, I was like, well, let's go look at our alumni and see is this actually happening? Are we actually having the, the impact that we want? And it was really refreshing to see that all of these principal decisions were actually having the impact that we wanted. Um, alongside that 3% divorce rate was basically the exact same in apostasy rate. Um, uh, the 97% are worshiping still at an evangelical church um, and, and, and faithful, um, almost, almost um, without exception, all of them are giving their children, all of them that have kids are giving their children uh, a Christian education, almost none putting their kids in the public school system. Um, a disproportionate number of the men who are church officers. Um, and so starting to see the kind of fruit of the degree is really, is really fun. I think we have a long ways to go. We have a long ways to go. NSA is nowhere near where I would like to have it. But the, the, the first round has gone extremely well, and I'm excited to see where it goes. What are some of the things you'd like to add in into the second round? Um, I think the part of it is just getting more mature at what we're doing. I'd love to see our, our, our rigor get better, get more focus on the product, what we're delivering. One of the things that I would really like to see over the next 10 years is to, um, my, my idea is that I think colleges in general are not very good at actually certifying people for careers. I think most vocational training is best as on the job training. I think that college is best when it's focusing on that, the core skills of the person. So what I would like to do is continue this robust liberal arts education, but have a ring around just immediately outside of NSA of strategic culture engaging um, industries that are pulling students into internships and apprenticeships and pulling them into work so that they get the the vocational training they get, but they get it from the person who can best give it to them. 
So then you get the best of both worlds, a, a, a college that is doing what it does best, but a job giving you what it does best. And we're starting to see that, you know, Canon Press is just down the road. They grab a ton of our students and teach them film, uh, writing, editing, uh, marketing, and all of that. So a lot of the Canon team are just NSA students that they pulled in. Um, you, we had an economic modeling firm that did a lot of, did this really intensely. They're probably doing less with them now, but there are other companies that are kind of developing right around NSA and grabbing students and pulling them into internships. So I'd like to see that developed to be a little more formal and a little more competitive. And I think that it will have a disproportionate impact if we do that right. That's fantastic. So sort of addressing the inner life, the educational life, and then the professional life all in one. Yeah, exactly. And and particularly, um, I think these students are being given a profound education. So let's deploy it and, and find the industries where we can, you know, I want to do the most damage to the culture as I possibly can. So what are the what are the things that we can put just outside that would would deploy this um, most effectively? So sort of training up, training up culture warriors in professional and, and, and high achieving fields. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that we need internships in finance. We're already building it in law and policy. We need more in marketing and in media. Um, we have a ministerial training program. I'd love to be fueling that more. So, so getting those things more, more clear. How incredibly inspiring. Thank you. Yeah. So just, I just have one more, one more question. I know you're, you're a busy man. You got to get off to the, get off to the airport, but you know, as you look at uh, the past seven or so years that you've spent at NSA and you're looking at, you know, all the things that have changed and, and the moment that, that you inherited, what, what makes you smile the most? What makes you proudest of what you're, you guys are accomplishing there? Maybe what you're accomplishing personally, what the team is accomplishing, the thing that you look at and you're like, yes. Oh yeah. That's, that's easily. Um, uh -huh. it's, Good. it's seeing, um, going out and seeing grads, um, seeing, seeing alums who are, um, faithful in churches, families, starting schools and, um, and living out what, what we have here. I mean, I, I, I love it. Um, when we, when we bump into alumni and, um, particularly seeing their kids, you know, when, when you see happy little kids who are excited to be a part of the family they're in, it's, it's, um, it, it's just a profound testimony. Wow. That's, that's beautiful. The alumni association is the best part. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you very much. Where can uh, people go to find out more about you or NSA? Where would you like to send them to? Yeah, definitely NSA.edu. Um, hit that webpage and there's a, a wealth of material about what we're doing there. Thank you so much, Ben. This has been a real blessing to learn about all this. Thank you. episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.